Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, good evening, or if you're not listening live, whatever time of the day it is, welcome to the show. Oof. Oof, there is, it is all kicking off before we turned up on air. Pierce Morgan has now quit or been sacked from Good Morning Britain. We're not talking about Pierce Morgan or the show. I can absolutely assure you of that, but it is relevant to what we're talking about. If you're watching us live, hello. If you're listening to it on the podcast, also hello. Do subscribe, hit five stars on the podcast so more and more people can listen. We can have more and more people spreading the word and, and giving a, a, an alternative platform. And I think this is an example of why we need these alternative platforms. Now, what we're talking about today is the institutional racism of the British media. Now, you will notice there is no question mark in the title. This show isn't starting on the basis of debating whether there is institutional racism within the British media. In the same way, I'm not going to debate whether the climate emergency is a fact, because in just the same way, the institutional racism of the British media is an, a, an objective fact. It's not a fact we can often discuss as a fact, largely because the boundaries of political conversation are defined in this country by the media itself, which is not exactly willing to discuss uh, its own racism and bigotry in an honest fashion. And that's why we have to have this discussion, because there are actually few platforms where that conversation can take place. And given the media, we are told, is a pillar of any healthy democracy, the fact that we're not having this conversation, given the way we look at the world, is often transmitted through the eyes and filtered through that media. This is a critical discussion for the very basis of our democracy. Now, a society which hasn't come to terms with its racist history of colonialism and slavery has certainly not begun to come to terms with its racist present. Of course, the two are very firmly linked. Now, the reason we're having this conversation is because of the revelations of Meghan Markle about the horrendous racism and also the lack of support she received when driven to the brink of suicide by an institution which has protected one of its own who is linked to one of the world's most notorious paedophiles and yet drove a woman of colour to the verge of suicide. Now, that itself is horrendous, but it also opens up a wider conversation about our media institutions, which have waged a ceaseless and obsessive campaign of vilification against Meghan Markle, including outright attacking her for the same things which the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate, has done. Take avocados. When one has an avocado, great, it's a kind of you know, a pregnant mother indulges in this uh, vegetable. And when Meghan Markle had it, it was a outrage because of the injustices linked to avocado. There were countless examples of that. But there was a wider point, because the fact we have this conversation when a royal invo is involved is itself, some would say, problematic. Because we have a media which vilifies Muslims, 
migrants, refugees, and various other minorities uh, in the present and throughout history, and within the media ecosystem, systematically discriminate against black journalists and people of color. No media institution which fails to represent the communities that exist to serve can honestly say it is faithfully representing the world as it actually is. And with hate crimes soaring, racist hate crimes, and also hate crimes against other minorities, the role of the media has to be interrogated. Now, with much, that's enough of me, because this is about passing the mic. I'm now going to bring in, to begin with, Mick Versi from the Muslim Council of Britain, who has done absolutely phenomenal work. Mick Dad, it's great to see you. Great to see Thank you. Thank you. Nice to have you. It's, great. it's, a, it's, a, it's an honour, always an honour, but particularly an honour um, in the current moment. Now, you've long worked on looking at media coverage of Islamophobia and the endemic Islamophobia which exists within the British media. Do you just want to tell tell me how you started doing that and just a kind of summary of what you found? Yeah, so what, we, what I started with, I, I saw a ridiculous uh, headline uh, talking about a Muslim gang attacking police and I knew straight off this, this seemed to be unreasonable and, and probably wrong. So I, I started the process, found out it was wrong, launched a complaint and within a few uh, weeks I actually was talking to the uh, uh, Mail on Sunday's managing editor who started to talk about all the various um, issues that they had in the paper in terms of um, when it comes to reporting about Muslims and from there I realized that there was uh, a value in trying to, to trying to make a difference and trying to complain through the systems uh, recognizing that it, it can only go so far and, and through that process I highlighted hundreds of examples of, of false stories and, and it's important to note I was focusing on accuracy and in terms of something which was fundamentally wrong about the article and made up uh, uh, very often uh, rather than the bigger issue which is uh, the, the bias that exists and sometimes the really unfair and unreasonable uh, narratives that are created about Islam and Muslims um, and even on the accuracy point there were literally hundreds of examples and you know winning case at, at the press regulator and, and that kind of thing to try and move the dial but what we see now is still so many of these individuals who spout hate about Muslims, those are part of the free, free speech idea, which is out there within um, sections of the media, even though there is no equivalent or, or, or um, equal space for those who have different views. And, and more important than that, there really shouldn't be a debate about racism. Um, unfortunately, we have so many of these commentators in, in the national press who are out there spouting hate against Muslims and nothing happens. They get to stay on there. There's no real um, regulation to stop them doing so. And, and in, instead, we have a real uh, challenge where minorities are just left out there without any support. And I think that, that, that you know, people like yourself, Owen, and, and others who, who are able to stand up and, and, and do advocacy on our behalf and, and give voices to, 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 to people who are, who are trying to campaign on this issue, you know, are, are, are to be praised. And, and, and we are really, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure to, to, to be able to support that. So I think that uh, where, when I look at everything right now and I see how many um, uh, bad stories about Muslims are, it's not just anecdotes. Like I can give you example after example on the front page of newspapers uh, where, where they talk about a Christian child forced into a Muslim foster care. I mean, that was a false, disgustingly dishonest uh, front page of the Times. Um, it's not just about um, stories which talk about Islamist schools when, when actually the school was found out not to be, it, you know, and, and they had to correct it. It's not about just... Um, 
calling basic Muslim practices of calling people to the faith as an Islamist mind poison. I mean, the, the type of stuff that is that is talked about when it comes to Muslims is really vicious. It's really, really vicious. I mean, it, it, it's it's so widespread. And it's not just amongst the, you know, some people say it's just the Katie Hopkins or the Rod Liddell or the Melanie Phillips of the world who, who say these types of things about Muslims. It's far broader. It, it covers people like, even, you know, people like Kelvin McKenzie when, when she, he suggested that Fatima Manji should not have anchored news reports because she wears a headscarf. Or Andrew Gilligan who, who said things about Muslims which were incorrect and had to be corrected, I think, four or five times about false stories which were with, with his byline. Or people like Richard Kemp who did the same thing, who talked about how Islamists might have infiltrated our armed forces i mean whether it comes to um terrorism grooming all these narratives are built up by these individuals who share this hate and and it's not and, and it's and you see it from firstly from individual stories but also from these uh, if you look at studies so uh, at the, what we have done at the muslim council of britain is we set up something called the center for media monitoring which actually looked at every single article over any uh, over a year period and, and we found we looked at tens of thousands of articles and we showed how um, case after case was negative. I mean, the vast majority of articles which, which are related to Muslims were, were linked to negative behavior. Um, and a third of the articles were really very, were completely misrepresenting or generalizing about Muslims. When you look at I mean, you look at things like terrorism, it's even worse. We see so many cases of, of, of the time when, when Muslims or Islam are, are mentioned, the, the theme that is most common is terrorism. Uh, and uh, over half the terms between, uh, 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 when it comes to terrorist and terrorism, when that's mentioned, over half the time it was mentioned with the terms Islam or, or Muslim. And you, you see these types of real problematic narratives being created and nothing's happening to deal with it. And, and what we try and do is highlight this, identify examples and engage with the press and, and broadcasters where we can to, to make things better. I mean, that point you made about the Times, I think, is so important because as Baroness Saida Varsi, conservative politician who is the most senior female Muslim politician in the country, pointed out, Islamophobia passes the dinner party test, the dinner table test. It, it's, it's respectable. It's a mainstream bigotry and prejudice that isn't simply as bad as it is uh, indulged and inflamed by tabloid newspapers. But the Times newspaper, which is, of course, seen as the paper of record, the establishment paper. So this is something which in, you know, in in middle class circles, which would, you know, the, the first people to be angered by being accused of racism, because, of course, in this country, accusations of racism are treated as more offensive than racism itself. That's how it shows how respectable it is, doesn't it? Exactly. That's spot on. And I think that, you know, some people just think it's the the the, 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 the you know, the Sun, the Express, the, the tabloids on, on the right, which are, you know, uh, harsh when it comes to Muslims. It's not the case. I, I, my, my genu genuine view is that if there is a new story in the Times about Islam or Muslims, unless it's written by the relig religion correspondent, it is not reliable. And that it, I would say, find another source to justify it. Because what they come out with is not just false so often it's the narrative is just misleading and it's hugely problematic and, and when you think about it you know this is the paper that apparently you know the elite read and and, and uh, many people in society think is is is, is center and uh, and reasonable on issues when it comes to race i mean they they publish this this hateful these lies about muslims uh 
too often and, and it's just really really unreasonable and it's dangerous and and i think that when it has reached the level that it's not just the tommy robinsons of the world but it's reached the level where where it's so mainstream so socially acceptable so um understandable and, and excusable and i think that for me is the biggest thing there's always an excuse you can always find a reason why this this was this happened and and that's not what you want to be you want to look at racism you stand back racism is not about one individual case it's about the institution you know, it, it, racism is structural. And, and the fact that we see that the majority of people in this country, even, you know, not people who, who come from a Muslim background, even those who, who are, you know, ordinary Brits on the street, the majority, according to the, the polls that have done, recognize that Islamophobia uh, is is uh, heightened by the press. Uh, and, and that's not something you, want, you, you should be happy, we should be happy with. And when I stand back and I think, you know, we, I care about a free press. I want there to be a, a society where the press is free to be able to talk about different issues and engage on important issues. But guess what? In the whole of Europe, people trust the, uh, the British press the least. Why? You know, it's because very often the, the, the sensationalism that happens, the, the scapegoating of minorities, and these are the types of things that make people lose faith in, in, in our institution of the press. And that's dangerous for us because we need a strong press to hold power to account and to, to make sure that we have a strong democracy. And, and for, for me, one of the big reasons why we want to get rid of um, this racism and, and the scapegoating of minorities from the press is to gain greater trust from the, the entirety of society with our institutions, because that's vital in, in times like COVID right now. And finally, What's the impact? What's the real life impact of this coverage, which, as we know, is across the media? I mean, the, your own research shows that the Mail on Sunday is uh, the most anti-Muslim in its uh, in its coverage. Uh, but that's, a you know, it's a high. It was about 70 uh, percent or so of all news articles were negative about Muslims. Uh, but that that was it's already a very high. They beat off a lot of competition in terms of the industry average. What impact does that have on Muslim communities across the country? And also, what can be done concretely to fight back as far as you're concerned? So I think the, the best thing, that, the way you can tell what the impact is, is firstly looking at polling what, or, and, and academic studies, right? So I can tell you personal anecdotes, which, which are, you know, where people um, have, have felt that they have been attacked because people um, have heard stories about Muslims, they think Muslims are groomers. Where do they get this from? They get these narratives from sections of the media, which create this sort of generalized link about Muslims being terrorists, Muslims being groomers, Muslims being X, Y, or Z, right? Um, women beaters, etc. Um, and oppressive to women, etc. All these, these, these broad, um, generalized tropes about Muslims and stereotypes. Um, and there are lots of individual cases like that. But let's stand back. Let's look at what the polling or the academic studies say, which look at it on a holistic level. And Cambridge University talked about how the press and the way that the media reports about Muslims has created an atmosphere of host rising hostility towards Muslims. Now, that's really problematic when, when, when universities looking at this uh, identify the press as, as a reason for why there is a rising hostility towards Muslims. And, you know, when, when over half of religious-based hate, hate crime is faced to, is, 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 um, face towards Muslims, when 70% of Muslims say, according to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, that they have experienced religious-based prejudice within the last year, when you look at these studies which look at it, you, you think, well, this is crazy. And then you look at the polling on this. You know, most people in this country would not be comfortable if, if one of their family married a Muslim. Uh, and, and it's worse, uh, worse than anywhere else in Europe. 
when it comes to um, half of the population think that Islam is a threat to the British way of life. Um, you know, a third of people believe these conspiracy theories and that there's Sharia law in the UK where non-Muslims can't enter. I mean, where do these things come from? They come from sections of the media creating these narratives, um, um, almost corroborating what the far right is saying, um, and, and, and they try and create excuses as to why that's happening. There needs to be a responsibility within sections of the media, within the media as a whole, that the outputs of what they do, they're not just reporters, they often have outcomes and there is a, a an impact for what they do and what they say and there needs to be responsibility and accountability for that make that thank you so so much and people everyone watching or, or listening to this on the podcast please do follow make that versus twitter feed because it, it's constantly exposing the islamophobia the anti-muslim racism that is an absolute pandemic in the british media and also the british political establishment not just on the right as well tragically uh, it must be pointed out but thank you so much and again your incredible and courageous work is making a big big impact it's educated me and i'm sure it will educate others so thank you so much thank you Anne. now before i bring in our two fantastic guests we've got two really incredible guests that i'm very very honored to have uh, if you're watching this live please do like the video and do subscribe uh, we can't ignore it whether we want to or not part of us part of me thinks just pretend it didn't happen but it isn't for is revealing of something else so i'm gonna have a clip and, and 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 the reason this is important isn't the reaction of pierce morgan who is now left uh for presumably he's going to join either the murdoch channel which is what i'd heard or gb news uh and probably portray himself as a woke martyr i think what alex Ber beresford the weatherman says that's what we need to listen to and that's why we need to listen to this clip they they, they have had an overwhelming amount of negative press um, you know, I, I watched the program yesterday and yes, they had some great press around the wedding, but what press is going to trash someone's special day? There was bad press around uh, the engagement before the engagement and everything that has followed since mm. has been incredibly damaging, quite clearly to... Megan's mental health and also to Harry and, and 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 I hear Pierce say that you know William has gone through the, the, the same thing but do you know what siblings experience tragedy in their life and one will be absolutely fine and brush it off and the other will not be able to deal with it so strongly and that's clearly what has happened with Prince Harry in this situation he walked behind his mother's coffin at a tender, tender age, in front of the globe. That is going to shape a young boy for the rest of his life. So I think that we need to all take a step back. Mm. And I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle. You've made it so clear a number of times on this programme, a number of times. And I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Meghan Markle or had one and she cut you off. She's entitled to cut you off if she wants to. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. OK, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No. Uh, uh, Sorry. So, do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe, not my no, own. No, no, no. See I'm, you later. I'm being... Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behaviour. You... He, I'm sorry, but Pierce spouts off on a regular basis and we all have to sit there and listen. 6.30 to 7 o'clock yesterday was incredibly hard to watch. Incredibly hard to watch. 
I think what's striking about that clip is the pent-up frustration at someone who, who was not able to actually speak out for so long and being forced to listen to a privileged white man constantly spouting out about racism. And when that person was mildly challenged about it, they couldn't, they couldn't deal with it. So off they went later claimed that he walked off because he was accused of disgraceful behavior. But as you can see in that clip, it was the walking off that was described as diabolical, sorry, behavior. So uh, the, the way it was spun afterwards by Pierce Morgan was wrong, but I want to bring in now our two absolutely fantastic guests. And I'm beyond honored to have, uh, Simon Moisin, who is a presenter and correspondent who's been a very familiar face on networks in Britain, on Pakistani television, reporting in 28 countries, an exceptionally experienced journalist who are very, very honoured to have. Great to see you, Simon. Hi, Owen. Good to be with And let's bring in as well Joseph Harker, who is one of my bosses, so I need to be on very, very... <laughs> yeah, who is Deputy Editor of Opinion and a fantastic writer at The Guardian newspaper. Let's just start. Hi, that Owen. clip, what, what should, when you see that clip this morning, what did you think? Should we start with you, Simon? What does that clip sum up to you? Um, bravery, to start with, on Alex Beresford's part, Beresford's part, because, as you say, there's there's a lot of time when people like Alex or myself have had to stay silent. Um, and he said that later in the programme as well, that oftentimes um, people like us have to refrain from speaking, either because we are scared to lose our jobs or because when we have, we have not been met with what we would expect is support or action, but instead resistance and obstruction. So actually that was really brave on Alex Beresford's part. It's also, I want to point out that he was the only black person on that panel of presenters that day, which also needs to be addressed and considered. And also the metaphor for silencing a person of colour when they're trying to speak their truth. So, you know, Piers Morgan walked off. What was the need to do that? Just sit and listen to someone who is telling you how they feel. And it's actually your colleague. It's someone presumably you know you should respect and, and you should just listen to, really. Joseph, I mean, that point Simon makes a metaphor. I mean, what was that emblematic of that scene? Yeah, Simon's absolutely right. The, it's the idea of, um, you know, he can dish it out, but the minute that someone starts criticising him, he then just, um, you know, walks out and, uh, as if, uh, you know, his his uh, authority has been challenged. I think there's a... We're used to... Uh, and as Simon says, Alex was the only person of colour on that uh, on that panel, uh, on the desk uh, today. Mostly, he there would be no people of colour there. Sometimes Andy Peters gets there, but I think he's behind a rope. He's kind of almost roped off to the side. And it's a it's a straight power thing that it's you know Piers Morgan. It's his show. No one need uh, you, you, any anyone who criticises him, him will get shouted down. The minute someone starts being more assertive, and probably Alex was fired up by the whole uh, Harry and Meghan interview. He, um, you know, Piers Morgan can't take it, but that's how power works. It's the people who are in the hot seat, who are in the central seat, who call the shots. And we are occasionally guests on the show and our role is normally just to be shouted at by him or whoever the uh, presenter on any particular show is. Now, in terms of the problem with institutional racism in the media, rather than the question, uh, the Society of Editors, uh, an institution, an in-house institution of the British media, uh, which is 
which which is the kind of establishment media, if you like. They released a statement yesterday essentially saying there was no racism in the British media. It's announcing Meghan and Harry suggesting there was. Let's just see a clip involving the chair of the Society of Editors. Themselves. Can I ask you about those headlines again? The star asked whether Harry would be marrying into gangster royalty. I'm not Mel- going to defend one headline. Sorry, you, I, Mr. Murray, you just told you just told me. Excuse me. Please may I speak? Please may I ask the question? Huge amount of coverage. Mr. Murray, you can continue talking over me, but I want two examples and say, ah, look, here's something that someone might point to and say. So therefore. That means that the, the no, the you told British me. You told me, my are, first, Mr. Murray. You told me the British tabloid press was not bigoted. I've just given you some examples. You're denying that those examples are racist, and I'm asking why are no. you denying that? Well, and I'm making the plaintiff of Victoria that what we're saying. I'm not defending individual things here and there. I'm looking at the whole thing. When you say that someone might make one comment about something, and I'm not saying whether those were bigoted or racist at all. Well, let, let comment, me ask you, as the Society of I, Editors, I never get the chance to actually finish Victoria. My point: when you actually label someone as bigoted because of one example that that is disputed. And actually say, and not taking the whole thing in the context and saying, look at the way that they have covered it. I'm afraid that's the, you know, if you keep on looking, you will find that needle in the haystack. Right, you but you just told me that the something. British press isn't, isn't racist. And now you're saying, if you keep on looking, you will find a racist needle in the haystack. So let me ask you again, are those headlines racist? Simple yes I'm or no? I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand to defend and say whether they are not. What, what Why? the context is. You're I a society the of editors. Sorry, Victoria, you know full well, because you are a journalist, you've got to see. The context. Well, let me give you some context then, please. If, if, right. Well, let me give you some. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Um, what, I mean, um, so, I mean, that is the head of the Society of Editors, one of the most senior media figures in the country. I mean, we can all judge how obnoxious he was. Simon, this claim, what does it say when the Society of Editors puts out that statement and then sends out this guy on national television to say the media is not racist? What does that say? Well, it says that we're still in a state of denial and we're, we're really unwilling and unable to accept or even turn the lens on ourselves. Uh, and just about the point of that interaction with Victoria Derbyshire, here is a well-established, empowered, respected white female. And now if she's being spoken to like that, imagine how potentially off-camera, in quieter times, uh, a black or a brown journalist might be spoken to or or the attitude towards 
someone might be. And also, the, the, you know, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If you talk about institutional racism, you're told that doesn't exist. And when you're asked for examples, the examples are also denied to you as well. Uh, and this is a problem that will we found well i've found certainly in my career over 25 years of every time i've actually found the strength to speak up and come forwards i'm told no it doesn't exist or no you're wrong it's in your head it's a conspiracy or actually it's not entertained at all gaslighting to, to a large degree i mean joseph what what does that say when i mean look you work for a national newspaper the newspaper i work for the fact that you've got one of the, you know a a someone who is in the guardian happens to be that all media organizations are affiliated to society of editors they do the press awards they're in charge of the big baubles that are given to journalists when he says that and they release that statement which to be fair the guardian has refuted today in a statement what does it say about the problem i think i, I i'm a reasonable man as you know owen and i if the editor of the if the head of the society of editors wants to say that our coverage of Meghan and Harry was fair and we were just holding power to account. I think that's absolutely fine for him to argue that. But to then go on and say the British press isn't racist, there is no racism in the British press. And then also to say we're not bigoted, which is not something they've been accused of in the first place. Um, it shows, first of all, that you're really defensive. And secondly, that you don't understand actually what racism is, that as, a, as if it's all about bigotry, as if it's all about shouting names at black people or whatever. Uh, it's not that at all. It's about denial of opportunities. It's about, you know, crushing people's career aspirations. It's about denying people a voice. That's what that's what we, that's what we mean when we say the media is racist. So that when um, you look at the columnists for any newspaper, you'll find that they're nearly that there's barely a person of color among any newspaper columnists. Um, that you'll find, you know, that that, that when when as, as Mick Dowd was saying earlier. When people of colour are discussed, it's always by a white person. You know, when Muslims are talked about, when black people are talked about, it's the um, that's that's the the narrative which is created by the media. It's a racist narrative because our voices are excluded. It doesn't mean that someone's going around saying kick out black people. That's not the issue at all. It's just that we are spoken about, not spoken to, and not listened to, and not heard, and certainly not allowed to take the lead. I mean, Simon, how big is this problem and what do we mean by institutional? Yeah, I, I was just about to say that, actually. But I mean, you know, I think a lot of the issue is, is that people are not really willing or able to look at themselves, ask the question of themselves of what is institutional racism? It's not a, a personal attack on any individual. It's about a systemic problem. It is. A, it, it, well, first of all, is the media an institution? Yes, it is. Does it have systems in place? Yes, it does. Should we then take a look at those systems and see where perhaps they're faltering? Yes, we should. Why are we able now to have a conversation about, um, you know, women's equality, but not race equality? What, what is so offensive to people to talk about fairness when we're talking about an attribute that is a protected characteristic, by the way, you know, race, gender, disability, uh, LGBTQI people, we are, these are protected characteristics, religion, as McDard was speaking about earlier. And we are people, if I talk about journalism, I'm a journalist, we like to ask questions, we hold truth to power. 
why are we not able to ask those questions of ourselves? Uh, and why are there so few lone voices? And, and it is a big problem. It, it's not individual anecdotal uh, scenarios. I, I've been a journalist for 25 years. Uh, Joseph's been a, a journalist for decades as well. You've been in, in the industry. We've all witnessed it. And it's time that we really do face up to it and, and, and ask those questions of ourselves and talk about those systems. And as Joseph says, it's about who are we hiring? How far along the line do they get? And, and actually, who are the editors doing the hiring? Because if it's an all white male or even white female panel of interviewees, perhaps they're not going to do the hiring or, or the coverage or the addressing the issues that need really addressing. I mean, Joseph, what, what's your take on the size of the problem? And also that point about the defensiveness. When institutional racism is discussed within the media, some journalists respond as though you've gone up to their mothers and, and said something very abusive. Uh, they take it as a very, very, very vicious personal attack. Basically what Piers Morgan did on national television in different forms. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, obviously there's that, that is the response. So how big do you think the problem is? And, and that problem of that very defensive and often, often angrily defensive pushback. I think that's what's really worrying about this response because the fact is even when with the best will in the world, undoing centuries of racism on which the British press has been built is a really, really difficult job. It's, it's the kind of thing you have to think about every single day because every day editors are making decisions about who we're gonna commission, what we're gonna write about, what's the stories of the day. And every day those, decisions are being made almost exclusively by white people so the stories we want to tell the way we want to tell them never gets an airing so even with the best will in the world you have got to be thinking about that dynamic every single day to try and do something about it because the minute you stop thinking about it you revert back to the old ways and, and let's face it the british newspaper industry was basically built up for rich privileged white men that's it been its default for centuries. It's been like that. That's what its success is built on. About 40, 50 years ago, they thought, well, maybe we should start including some privileged white women in the mix. And then over time, there's been real gains in terms of gender. Not that we're there anywhere near there yet. But in terms of race, we're still almost at the starting point. And, and what I find quite depressing about this all is that we've had the summer of Black Lives Matter. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, you know, the McPherson inquiry in 1999, when people for the first time realised that the newspaper industry had an institutional racism problem. A few things were tried for the most part, then they were quickly forgotten because it's kind of difficult and we had these hard to reach communities and we didn't have any contacts. And then it was dropped. I, I, the Guardian, it's been a pushing something I've been pushing since then. But I've seen other newspapers really aren't that interested. And, and, and to be now back for many newspapers, many institutions at the same place we were 20 years ago, where people are saying, oh, yes, we should get try and find a black writer or something like that. I just think it's quite depressing. And it shows that the real task that lies ahead of us, even when people want to make a change, and clearly the Society of Editors think that everything's OK as it is, and don't you dare accuse us of anything. I mean, Simon, is it, in terms of your own experiences, um, oh, go on, sorry. Well, when we're just a few more things on that, really, it's, it's when we're told, oh, we weren't able to find a a black or or brown 
journalist or commentator or someone for a fee. I mean, where are you looking? Because there are hundreds and thousands, you know, we, we see the same old faces. If I talk about broadcast media, we see the same faces, my counterparts and colleagues over and over again, not just on the same programs, but the same faces over several across several programs. There are hundreds and thousands of journalists and TV presenters in the making out there who deserve that opportunity. Other white kids as well, right? So, uh, uh, and then obviously we want what we are showing people and how we are influencing them to reflect society that we live in. And, and it's not okay to just put forward the one or two black or brown people on screen and hold them up and say, oh, but we have so-and-so. Uh, I mean, that in itself is just completely unfathomable. And I've been told that so many times by editors and colleagues, but what about, you know, it, it's, it's not okay to do that because that is not a, a representation and it's just a PR exercise. And I don't like as an on-screen person to be used in that fashion. You know, me becoming a TV presenter um, yes, I broke through a number of glass ceilings, but I'm an exception. Where are where are the others? You know, there aren't hundreds of me. There there are a handful of of brilliant colleagues who've made it through, but there should be many others. When we celebrate first, we should ask why is that person the first? Why are there not many more of them? And in terms of how bad the problem is, there is no spectrum on racism you know it's not i've heard in discussions over the last few days generational issue casual racism um that's not really racism you know it's just unfathomable that racism is brushed aside in this way and not surprising at the same time because nobody wants the status quo to change the people who are saying that are not willing to look at themselves and change the status quo I mean, Sammy, you, you've been a journalist in broadcast media for a very, very long time, very, very experienced, CNN, BBC, and so on. I mean, are there any, yourself, any certain experiences that really, that you're willing to share that flesh flesh out some, some of these as, as, as very striking examples? Yeah, it's, um, you have to think about that before you're willing um, to speak. And I, I, I don't think it serves this conversation to name and shame broadcasters or individuals because then they'll pick that up and, and use that and, and make it a very personalised issue. And as we're saying, it's not necessarily a personalised issue. It's a systemic issue that needs addressing. But yes, I mean, in my personal and professional life, um, you know, I am a visibly brown woman. I have experienced racism you know, race is a construct created to try and divide us and, and put us aside. But racism exists because we experience it uh, very early on. And perhaps unconsciously, I think I self-censored for myself from the stories I covered because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the the Asian correspondent Um I, I remember working at Pebble Mill in Birmingham in the, in the 90s and, and somebody bursting into an edit suite and telling me to get out because I was only on the Asian network and I was actually working towards the programme that night. Um, 
Uh, and I, I was, you know, very sheepish about it because I, I had just started out in my career. And I, I said, actually, I'm, I'm working for tonight. But I had to go and find someone to tell this person to back off and let me in the edit suite. I have had my stories being taken from me and being given to white colleagues. And, and initially, you brush it aside, you know, no one story is exclusive all of us are probably looking at the same ideas, but when it becomes a pattern consistently over time, and I did confront my line manager about that, and I was told, yeah, it's true. You know, we want our popular face on screen. Um, and that's where, you know, as Joseph was saying, there are, you know, obstructions in our paths. Uh, if, if you don't allow people to go on screen more often, then how will they become your popular face? And, and by the way, I also took offense to that because I've worked in network television for 15 years when I was told that. Um, and, you know, another example, which actually I didn't get at the time, was um, you don't have the look we're looking for. And um, I, when I tell people that, they they te they gasp and actually i didn't when i was told that because i was so assured in in my experience like i couldn't believe that 20 years into my career i was still being told this i thought they were talking about my hair makeup and clothes and i offered to change that um i can't change the color of my skin i'm afraid and i have a right to be there i mean i, I really hope people watching and listening to this absorbing this because it's it, it it tells a story that a lot of people I think maybe watching and listening they I mean it's just that term people say shocked but not surprised when people of color I speak to talk about that within the media but a lot of white people have a responsibility to to not choose to ignore this Joseph I mean that point you made about change being so slow why why is change on this just so glacial? But uh, can I just come back on the point that Simon made, which I think is, is one of the most insidious things, which is a, a, an experience that we all have, where Simon said, I didn't want to be typecast as the Asian correspondent. And that's what I found really, the, the, when I first started in, in, let us say, the national press, the, um, that was the thing that it really felt like in order to be accepted, you had to leave all your history, all your background at the door. And the only way that you could be accepted would be if you could start mimicking what a posh white Oxbridge person wanted or thought was important. And that's a really strong cultural, uh, uh, embedded culture within the national newspapers. And I think in many papers, I think it still is that way. But I think it's really important just for our own self-respect, for our own sanity, that we have to be able to go in and say, look, this is who I am. This is what I, my background is. It may not be the same as yours, but it's just as interesting, it's just as valid, it's just as relevant and just as important. And I think that's really, we need to be going in with that attitude because we can't be going in thinking we have to put our head down and hope they don't notice that we're brown. I think that's, but that's a really uh, ongoing thing which a lot of people have trouble coming to terms with. And, and for clear reasons, you come into an organisation, there's a really dominant culture there. You are the only brown person in your department. You're probably at the most junior level in your department. And you, you, you have this sense of needing to fit in. And that's a real, that's a problem that we've all had and we've all had to go through and many of us still are going through. Um, but it's just one of those things. But um, Owen, to get to your, 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 directly to your question about why it's taking so, so slow, 
everything is set up if you know if the, the, the experts that we all talk to are all sort of white are all white the politicians we refer to are nearly all white the you know the 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 voices we hear the discussion the the the, the professors in the universities are the 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 experts we go to on, on anything are, are all are all white the discussions that our senior editors have around the table around the dinner party tables and everything else are nearly always just with white people so that's that's their reality and it's a sense that these are the important stories we all agree on what's important as far as we're concerned this is the big story of the day and then if you come along saying well actually i think what's happening down in peckham is really significant right now you know they're not going to take that seriously and that's 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 why you know the, the the story of the inner city kid trying to you know what's going on in the inner cities is so let you know it's, it's talked about and covered so less uh, so, so little and it's only when it really bursts out in things like you know the 2011 riots anti-police riots or, or or the black lives matter protests last year where they think oh my gosh why have we why haven't we been covering this and it happened again with uh young muslims in after the uh july 7th uh, uh, bombing the, you know what's happening with british muslims how can we don't have any muslims in the organization who we can even talk to about what's going on there's a whole load of sort of barriers at such a sort of micro as well as a macro level that are really holding things back and 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 getting in the way of, you know change happening and change taking place i think what's really got to happen is the people at the top have got to decide we're not happy with this we're not going to tolerate it anymore we're going to put put people of color in senior positions in agenda setting positions and take it from there and see what the difference is and but that's not happening at the moment and you know, the, rules are written, the rules that are written are written by majority white men for centuries, you know, whether that's our laws um, that run the justice system or, 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 you know, the protocols in a media organisation, you know, not even white women are getting to write some of those rules. So it's, it's not just the people in the positions, it's the practices of, of how we operate within the media that really needs addressing right from hiring to the coverage that we actually at, in terms of our output what we're putting out there and and you know just back to I didn't say as much as I wanted to because it's quite hard actually to speak out because uh, you know I had to have a conversation with my agent whether I should even have this discussion with you tonight Owen because how damaging it could it be to me and my career you know I don't have the golden handcuffs of being affiliated to a particular organization but any anymore but um you know I, I I still am a part of the media. I've just been recovering from an injury, as you know. Um, I was injured in Jerusalem and, and had to take time out for my health. But, you know, I'm still a part of, of the media and, and nobody wants to be ostracised, which is why I said Alex Beresford was brave. I mean, he was brave in the context of, of having a position. Uh, imagine what a freelancer is experiencing. I mean, that, that was kind of building on that. What I was going to ask you in terms of just how hard it is to speak out. And you've given an example there. You had to check to see just doing this would have adverse consequences potentially for you. And in a media ecosystem, which has become ever more precarious, we've seen the casualization yeah. uh, of the media, diminishing numbers of secure jobs, uh, where as well, you know, it, a lot of the media does work on who you know and who you don't annoy, essentially. Unpaid internships have become a pillar of the British media, often 
people can't afford to do them, of course, uh, because you have to pay ridiculous amounts of money to live in London, one of the most expensive cities on earth. Um, and they're often the friends and relatives of the existing journalists. I'm not uh, revealing too much by, by, well, it's important people know this. It's important how they know how the media works and then they get the jobs off the back of it. But that's the point, isn't it? Because a lot of people, you know, you get people of color who disproportionately from poorer backgrounds find it, don't have those connections, don't often have those parents with the financial capital that some London-based privately educated white people will have. And also because of the precarious nature of work, that constant fear of losing your job if you speak out. Yeah, nobody else is going to pay my bills if I lo lose my job. You know, I can't go running to mummy or daddy to take take care of me. And, you know, it's, it's a class issue as well. You know, it's not just privileged um, uh, white people. There's uh, privileged brown and black people who sometimes do get in because they went to the right boarding school or the right university as well. And, you know, I have no illusions. I, I My mum made me study very hard since I was seven years old to m make sure. And I think she realised that the only way that, you know, some I was going to develop was if I in that industry was because um, I was saying I wanted to be a journalist from when I was very young was to go to private school and um, you know my South London was kind of bashed out of me there but it is really it is really scary to speak up you know I, I'm a woman who I think people think are is um, very empowered is is confident uh, is strong can speak out and yet you know uh, I'm very nervous I've spent you know several um, days uh, through the Meghan and Harry scenario, typing, rewriting, editing, deleting tweets, because you don't, you think, can I say this? Um, is it okay to say this? Can I speak my truth in the same way that it's just so utterly depressing that at the beginning of my career, I self-censored who I am, you know, a brown, Pakistani, British, Muslim woman. Um, uh, and I, I have to tell you that, how many conversations I've had, not just with black and brown friends from across other industries, but particularly within the media who are talking about how this whole scenario, and, and we've only had probably two or three days of discussion about racism in the media so far, how deeply harrowing it is, how traumatic it is, how, how hard it is to relive your experience. Um, somebody said to me, oh, PTSD the other day, and I, and I thought, oh, no, that's only what you experience if, you know, uh, I've suffered from it when you cover conflict. And she said, well, there's PTSD to do with racial trauma. And, and that is a truth. And that is a truth that many of us are experiencing right now. So I think people need to really consider um, the impact it also has and how that then silences you. It, it creates uh, an atmosphere of self-censorship. Self it creates an atmosphere of silencing people. You're called the troublemaker, the killjoy. And then, of course, we all know those racialized tropes of being difficult and aggressive and, and a bully, etc., etc., etc. It's never ending, really, when you choose to speak out. Joseph, finally, I mean, I suppose looking forward, are there any, is there anything that can be built upon? Any positive examples? I mean, there are new media outlets like Galdem, which have been set up, which are platforming new um, up and coming women of color, uh, but still lacking the resources and financial support of, of mainstream media outlets. But, and, and, and what needs to be done? What can be actively done? And how can people be allies in that struggle? Well, well there are two things 
two ways to tackle it. There's the short term and the long term. And, and, and maybe one of the biggest um, positive is that the Financial Times now has a woman of colour as editor. So let's hope that there's going to be lots of progress there. Um, but I think there's, uh, as you'll know, Owen, I, I run a scheme at The Guardian, which has been running nearly 20 years now, called the Positive Action Scheme. And I do have to give it a plug. Um, and it runs every summer, but unfortunately, it's not running during the pandemic. But we take on um, uh, up to 20 young people who are just getting into journalism from ethnic minorities and give them a really good work experience. It's unpaid, I will accept, I will admit, but it's they, they will see all across the newspaper, different departments, and they will also have a mentor who will give them advice and careers advice on making the best of the time in The Guardian and also making the best of their career. So it's a very um, full fortnight that people have and it's and a lot of people have gone on to have very good um, journalism careers having been on the programme. That's a long-term thing. In the short term, it's just a case of putting your faith in people who are around. I often find that when people, when editors will say, I don't know, I don't know who can write, we don't have any writers or there's no, you know, I don't know who can, you know, do this job. And then they're, look, they're looking around and they're seeing these brown faces in front of them, but they're just, we are just invisible. We're not considered for those roles in the way that some white Oxbridge person would be, you know, who's the right look and acts the right way and, you know, can talk, you know, has the right understanding and appreciation of, of, of opera and, 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 uh, and the cl classical music. So, um, but you get the, the, um, you, you, you will find that, that there are lots of, there, there are lots of risks that editors could take to give people of colour a break. And we don't get it we don't get a break. And I think back at The Guardian, and I don't think Gary will mind me saying this, but Gary Young was considered a risk when he was um, given a, a, a full a full term, uh, a, a full time contract at The Guardian. And Gary has gone on to be, you know, well, I don't need to say he's, he's amazing, he's fantastic and he's, and he's, you know, he's been absolutely brilliant for the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, I think of columnists like Aditya Chakraborty, who was, you know, again, it was like a risk to take him on at the time. It was like, oh, you know, and the um, but that we have more than proven ourselves when we've been given the chance. And I see lots of other, you know, kids straight out of Oxbridge or whatever. And they're somehow the risk on them is not seen as a risk. It's just, well, you know, we'll let their natural ability flourish. And, you know, it's just waiting for the moment. And if editors could see us like that, people of colour like that, and take a risk, put us in senior positions, give us the chance to make mistakes, to learn on the job and, and, and to have that mentoring, which, you know, is so easily given to um, posh and privileged people in, in the newspaper industry, then I think we can see real change. I think what's what's been, you know, depressing for me is seeing the Society of Editors just have that knee-jerk, defensive, denial response. And it's like, we don't really think we need to do anything here. And obviously, if, they, if any organisation has that attitude, and thankfully, The Guardian has disassociated it from those comments. I think every newspaper and every editor worth his or her salt should do the same and say, we, are, we, we don't see this. We, we do not accept this idea that we are, can be un, that we are not allowed to be criticised for sort of racial uh, imbalances in, in, the, in, in our coverage, in, in our institutions. So I think more should do that. But while... If the Society of Editors is a representation of the state of the British press, then we will be waiting a long time for any change. And I should say, Joseph's written a really brilliant piece for The Guardian, which has uh, gone up, called the, it's entitled The British Press Isn't Racist, Say the Editors. That just shows 
how long the problem will endure. So look at Joseph Harker and the Guardian and do read and share that piece as well. Simon, finally, looking forward then, what do you think what do you think can be done? I mean, what positives do you think are there to build upon? But what what and what how can people be allies in that struggle? I mean, there's there's so much and plenty to be done. And and let, let's be clear, you know, it, this is a conversation that is needed in every industry. It just so happens to be that the media is my passion and my industry. And that's why we are talking about it, right? This, this needs to be addressed right across society. Now, the media is uh, a huge influencer of the conversations we're having. It shapes policies, it shapes um, politicians and and how they behave. It can really address so many issues. But if we are not reflective of the society that we are in, then we are doing ourselves an injustice. We are not reflecting uh, the the world as it is. So we need to start being honest with ourselves and i think that is both a top and bottom exercise so uh changing um management of course and changing how we recruit people who are we giving those opportunities to you know it can't just be a black or brown person it should be a black and brown person from a working class background lgbtqi people and and you know of all sorts of ages and and backgrounds and experience and um there's a lot of gatekeeping you know as joseph said you know people are told oh you don't have the experience in this will allow them if you don't give them the chance you they won't develop that experience. So there is plenty to be done. We just need to ask ourselves, if if we're talking about institutional racism and it's not about the individual, it is made up of individuals. And if every day we go to work and say, hang on a minute, how can I really address what part I'm playing in this huge machine? Because I'm one cog, a part of this huge machine. What can I do? Let's call out um, when we see racist and racialized practices, let's speak up in those um, morning and afternoon meetings we have in our newsrooms and production companies. Let's talk about it in the field when the brown or black person is is treated differently. And and we're not talking, you know, I don't. I, we don't need white saviors. We don't need white people to speak for us. We have a voice. We know what we're talking about. We need them to stand beside us and behind us and, and back us up. And we saw that with Black Lives Matter. That was the big distinction everyone was talking about, that it, it was a spectrum of society that reflects society coming out to speak for um, the black um, community in the Black Lives Matter movement. And that is what we need. We re- need real allies across the board at every level, not just token diversity PR committees and we'll look into this and some navel gazing and, and maybe hire a presenter or move one presenter to a prime time slot. Let's really have diversity at every level and represent everyone. Can I just say thank you so much to both of you. That was so powerful and so educational. Very, I found it extremely educational. I, I really hope everyone who watches and listens to this finds it educational as well. These are the discussions we should be having on television rather than pantomimes involving certain presenters and this is the only way things will move forward if 
Uh, One more thing, Owen. Sorry. <laughs> One more thing. Sorry. They'll never get a TV presenter on on your show because you won't shut up. <laughs> is that you mentioned very briefly about alternative spaces, and I do think that is really important to discuss. You right at the beginning talked about why your show was the show that was addressing these issues, and we have other alternative. Um, we have Aurelia Magazine, Galden Magazine, Black Ballad. What? Why is this happening, Kolechnikov? For the podcast, you know what? 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 Um, and Black. Woman's Hour, I have to say, absolutely brilliant. Uh, we need these alternative spaces so we can have the conversations and the platforms that um, that we really do deserve. So um, good luck to everyone working on those as well. Um, solidarity to you. Absolutely, and those those are platforms we need to signal boost and and support and elevate. And hopefully, the mainstream media will be forced to buckle and actually have to platform the voices that need to be heard rather than setting up these uh, pantomime uh, uh, discussions which don't advance anything. Um, but honestly, you were both so incredible. And by the way, Simon, just so courageous to be able to talk about this. I know it wasn't easy. I know it's hard. Uh, and we're really honoured that you shared your experiences. And Joseph, it's always an honour, uh, a huge honour in, in the media <laughs> ecosystem, uh, in which we inhabit to be able to work with someone like yourself. Uh, I'm hugely... <laughs> hugely honoured uh, all the time and relieved uh, so thank you thank you to you both so so much and everyone please do follow both of them follow their work uh, share their work um, and uh, again a huge honour to have both of you thank you so much thanks for inviting thank us you, thanks so much thanks Joseph blimey I mean they were brilliant uh, uh, just a huge honour to be uh, to be able to have the actual informed, experienced voices who need to be front and centre of these conversations. Uh, that's what's lacking in this debate. And uh, this is where the debate should begin. We shouldn't have to have a debate about, what, you know, with the society of editors, are they right that the media isn't racist or not? We should actually be able to accept the problems that exist and define the media uh, and then talk about what the actual problems actually are and how we can struggle to overcome them. And that, of course, means at the very forefront, uh, those within the media, people of colour who are systematically discriminated against. Um, so thank you so, so much to everyone for watching and for listening to this. Uh, just to, again, just a quick bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you're watching live, do like the video and do subscribe. Share it about. I, I think as many people as possible need to, need to watch this, to listen to it and to be educated uh, by what we've just heard uh, from, from our extremely esteemed and experienced speakers so please do do that uh, if you're listening to the podcast thank you so much subscribe give us five stars if if you're if, if you feel so well disposed uh, we really appreciate that as well uh, but otherwise keep elevating these voices on social media find the voices that need to be heard retweet read watch that's how we learn that's how we get educated uh, and and that's that's how we support the struggles of those who need to be heard. If anything comes from Meghan Markle's stories, it's exactly that. It, you know, this is called the struggle, unfortunately, rather than a walkover, precisely because there are entrenched, vested interests whose very interests are in in keeping back those who threaten their privilege, and they will do so angrily and with determination. And unfortunately, as we've seen, that is so entrenched those vested interests that when it comes to addressing racism within the media as joseph so brilliantly put it it's at the starting line
that has to change. So please do support and elevate those voices. Uh, there are long struggles ahead. We have to all support them. Uh, thanks again to everyone who watched and who listened. It's been a huge honor. We will be back with great interviews to come. And as I've said, this documentary into the COVID-19 profiteers, and we will be back live on Sunday at 5 p.m. I hope you're doing well. Uh, keep supporting the struggle for those who are doing so, whatever struggles you're supporting. Uh, and let's get through this absolute nightmare, this pandemic. And uh, I hope everyone's looking after each other. Lots of love. I'll see you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.